0: These 20 years have felt like both a long time and a short time, and as we recite the names of those we lost, my memory goes back to that terrible day when it felt like an evil specter had descended on our world, but it was also a time when many people acted above and beyond the ordinary.
1: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. The 20th anniversary of September 11th finds the country looking back and in no mood for celebration. There's instead a kind of grimness and fatigue, in part brought on by the withdrawal from Afghanistan that marked in inglorious fashion the end of a war that began to track down the perpetrators of the worst domestic terrorist attack in our history. The sense of purpose and patriotism that united the country in the year after the attack seems slowly to have given way to a greater mistrust in government and one another. And there's not much else to cheer the country up this week. The COVID present resurgence is deadly serious, with new cases having increased sixfold over the summer and weekly fatalities now eclipsing 10,000. Meanwhile, the Texas statute that brazenly ignores Roe v. Wade continues to have real bites since the Supreme Court refused to enjoin it. But the Department of Justice charged into the battle with a filing that figures at least to put the statute on hold until the courts can assess it. But just behind that action is the prospect in the near future of the overruling of Roe v. Wade by a new five-person super conservative majority. All these developments play out against and are aggravated by the miserable partisan divide that plagues our political and social lives and that some trace to 9-11 itself. And to help piece together the past, present, and future developments, we have a terrific set of guests or I really should say duo of guests because Congressman Raja Krishnamurti, who was set to participate, has just been called away on an emergency scheduling conflict. So we move ahead with two superb commentators who will be more than enough, I think, to carry the day. And they are David Ferentold david writes for the washington post covering national politics since 2010 in 2017 he won the pulitzer prize for national reporting for his campaign coverage and his coverage of trump's suspicious or even downright fraudulent exploits of his own charities david also serves as a political analyst for nbc news and msnbc I just wanted to say as a personal note that it was his meticulous reporting that first alerted us to the rampant pattern of fraud and sharp dealing, which persisted throughout the presidency of Donald Trump. And I think we're beholden to him for that. Great to be here. And Jamie Gorelick. A partner since 2003 at Wilmer Hale, where she chairs the Regulatory and Governmental Affairs Department, she served in the Clinton administration as Deputy Attorney General of the United States and Deputy General Counsel of the Department of Defense. She was president of the District of Columbia Bar and in 2018 was named a Lifetime Achiever by the American Lawyer and a Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers in America. Perhaps most importantly for today's episode, she served as one of the 10 commissioners on the independent and bipartisan 9 11 Commission, which released a full public report with detailed recommendations for combating terror going forward. And I just want to add, she's been an extremely important mentor for me personally over the course of my career. And I'm confident that the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, would say the same. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Jamie Gorelick.
2: Happy to be here.
1: All right. Reliving the searing memory, but also reflecting on its meaning today. So many ways to approach this, but I'm very struck by the overall thrust of the commentary and the apparent mood of the country, which, in a word, is dreary, I think. Here's one of many commentators I could have chosen, Saird Schmaman, who says, September 11th is shorthand for the moment when America lost its way, especially with the war in Afghanistan having come to a tragic, ugly, and senseless end. Many of the anniversary essays are about a legacy of misguided Middle Eastern wars, foreign policy failures, Islamophobia, and confusion about America's role in the world. Fair?
2: Not entirely, no. Clearly, there were failures on the part of the United States government in the run-up to what happened on 9-11. And goodness knows, the 9-11 Commission looked at those very deeply and tried in in a popular descriptive mode to educate the American people about what happened and how we could do better. Having said that, I do think that when people ask, which I've been asked quite frequently in the last month, are we safer? We did not experience, Harry, the same kind of attack that we experienced on 9-11 in the last 20 years. We know from bin Laden's papers that were discovered after he was killed that he expected that the spectacular attacks of 9-11 would lead the United States to withdraw from the world and collapse. And none of that happened. There's a lot of thinking going on right now about Afghanistan and what we should have done or what we shouldn't have done. One thing I'm pretty clear on in any event is that you cannot tolerate as a country, a foreign enemy having a safe place to work And plan attacks on your country. So, when the Taliban and Afghanistan were harboring Al Qaeda, we could not let that stand. Getting rid of those safe havens for Al Qaeda was a really important thing to do. How long we should have stayed, what we should have done after we achieved that goal, I'm not the expert, but I think we have a right and an obligation to defend ourselves, and that was an important piece of it. I'm totally happy to talk about the other things that we did. After 9-11, but since you mentioned Afghanistan and the unhappiness that people have expressed about the way in which we left, I don't think it causes me to reconsider whether we should have gone in.
1: Yeah, and I hope we will talk from those vantage points, but I didn't mean specifically about Afghanistan, though. You're right. The linkage is there. In fact, maybe I can serve this up to you in this way. We are having, not just with the opinion elite, but with the American people, a pretty remarkable negative view about the last 20 years. Most recently, more Americans, a significant number, say 9-11 changed the country for the worse. And 10 years ago, it was divided. And one year after the attack, 55% said it was for the better. Is this just the sort of short-term myopia caused by the unavoidable chaos and casualties of leaving Afghanistan? Or do you think it's a broader sort of malaise that have people basically in the dumps down about the effort that, we, that commenced on 9-11?
0: There certainly is a reaction to what happened in the last few weeks in Afghanistan and the images of people people clinging to the U.S. planes leaving. But there's obviously been a broader backlash against America's wars abroad. Donald Trump ran against it. That was one of his major points with it. He said no more foreign wars. So we had two presidents in a row, Democrat and then a Republican, running on that provision. And I think what you see is kind of an embrace of some elements of that. I and mean, I think there's sort of a special forces chic around the world, around the country, where a lot of people want to pretend like they're, they're the Navy SEALs. But there's not the previous sense that we as a country were doing something together when there was in Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere else. I think that's really broken down. And when you look at the country, Jamie's right, there have been no similar attacks. Although the fact that it's did nothing happened makes it easier to take for granted I think you generally see a more fractured country, a country less confident in its own abilities, and that includes wars overseas, but a lot of other things. Just generally a country that seems like it has lost faith in its its potential and also lost faith in each other.
1: And Jamie, that's more what I mean. I want to zero in on the commission's particular recommendations, but there is this sense that the anniversary has crystallized, at least in many of the things I've read, of almost a parallel from World War II and the complete chauvinism to the Vietnam War and and sort of disillusionment. So it may well be, I think it likely is, a product of the different sorts of causes that David mentioned, the miserable political divide, social media. God only knows what 9-11 would have been like had it happened when we had robust social media as we do today. Any thoughts about how we come to this pass where the country really does feel, unless you disagree with David, deflated, that it's lost its way a little bit in this very important mission.
2: I think we have to have a little bit of historical perspective here. <laughs> Please, I, yeah. I, no, I, I was in college during the Vietnam years, the race riots, the Cities burning. We felt that we had lost our way then. And we've often felt that way. It's not terribly surprising that people would answer the question Has 9 11 changed us for the worse? Yes, because it was a terrible event. It made us acutely aware of our own vulnerability in a way that we hadn't been before. And the spectacular nature of the attack coming out of a community that you wouldn't think would be able to carry out a spectacular attack was shocking to the country. The opportunity existed in that moment to unify the country then and for a long time. And George Bush did unify us in the immediate aftermath, but not beyond that. And I think that was a squandered opportunity, whether we would be as disunified as we are today, had he taken a different course, I don't know. It was an opportunity for unity. If you look at the recommendations that the 9-11 committee commission made in chapter 13, all of them begin with the word unity, unity of purpose, unity of effort. You cannot have a strong country if the country is not unified. And we are about as disunified as we have ever been, and that is really worrying.
1: Yeah, so let's zero in on it. The commission report now, it did say, in addition to all sorts of concrete recommendations, it made a general pitch. I'm quoting now, Jamie, in order to defeat an insurgency, one must promote a stronger ideology, value system, security environment than the opposition. We have to offer an example of moral leadership in the world, committed to treat people humanely, abide by the rule of law, and be generous and caring to our neighbors. And again, another thrust of the public opinion here, I'll just take one example, which is Carlos Lassada. in The Post says, look, this affirmation of American idealism is one of the documents, more important moments, but it's also among the most ignored. So again, this is not a a grading exercise for the commission, but as sort of analysis of where we've come from and where we're going, how have we done on that most important of goals set by the commission in the ensuing 17 years, maybe after the first year? If the commission were to reconvene to give the country a sort of report card based on the standards it had set out, what would it look like? I think
2: that we have, not led with our values in the larger world, and that it has been to our detriment and undermined our strength. When I served as general counsel uh, at the Pentagon, I noted in so many instances how much more money the Pentagon had than the State Department, and how folks in the Pentagon would have gladly given the State Department a little more money to show the Humanity of the United States as a beacon, if it could have allocated the funds itself, and it has ever been thus, and it's not—it's not sensible. In saying that, I want to be clear-eyed. Sometimes you have to fight. Sometimes you have to have strong borders. But the amount of money and effort that would be required to show our best values and our humanity is trifling compared to what we otherwise spend militarily, and that is a shame.
1: And in human lives. So David, thoughts about this? Are we near the core of what ails us or or what people are reacting to? Do you agree, A, with the core importance of it, and B, the overall failure of this moral leadership in the world as even more important than boots on the ground.
0: Well, I think Carlos, the Carlos that you mentioned, I read a, a great essay in the post that, that was about the literature of 9-11. What do we by reading all the books about Nine 11 what do we learn? He talked about this that it makes it even more of a tragedy in retrospect because you see now not just the tragedy of that day, but all the things that came out of it. You see that you see it as the beginning of something some awful things instead of the end. If you look at the country today, I feel like you see a couple of things in the coronavirus pandemic that are legacies of that. One is just a a distrust of institutions. So among the causes of that could be seeing the government mislead people about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, people misleading the, the country about the progress of the war in Afghanistan. That leads to people not wanting to trust mask mandates or not wanting to trust vaccines. There was some justification of an existing distrust of government in the American populace that's only showed itself now. And then also just the disunity of the last year that we're asking people to take vaccines to protect themselves and to protect their neighbors. And the idea that there's any sort of common responsibility, even in this case where the responsibility is just to protect yourself, people reject that. And it's so just about how can I help myself? What are my rights and my freedom? It doesn't matter. I just think of that as the extreme version of the repercussions that began after 9-11 when we didn't ask people to sacrifice for the country. The advice was shop. It helped the economy. There's nothing you need to do that everybody needs to do as a country. It just would have been a moment, I think, to give everybody sort of a unifying experience. I think people were ready for that in the aftermath of 9-11. And instead it was like, no, we're going to fight this on the cheap with professional army. Go back to your business. And I think the loss of that sense of a unifying responsibility to each other see it so much more exaggerated in this
2: year. One thing I would add to that very good point that David makes is that we are stronger, demonstrably stronger, for having an inclusive approach to Muslim Americans. The instinct of some in our government, indeed people who could make this happen, was to round up Muslim American men just because of who they were. That instinct is the opposite of the sense of community that David was suggesting would have been helpful. And this is one of the places where I charitably say that George Bush missed an opportunity to unify us. Eventually we got to the right place, but it was not pretty in getting there.
1: Another of the great essays out there from these last couple of weeks by Fareed Zakaria, who basically is asserting that Al-Qaeda and terrorists have lost if you look at the general movement within the Muslim world in the last 20 years, and it's the proper focus more than the West versus them. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
3: Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay. But what white burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine & More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle like one of my favorites, Mirwood Chardonnay. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each.
1: Let's move to some nuts and bolts issues then, apart from the national mood. We are out of Afghanistan, and I don't see a great national appetite for launching another kind of nation building exercise. So where does that leave us? What does counterterrorism look like when we are leading with diplomacy, and that's the main thing we're doing.
2: I'm not sure I agree with your premise. I think that we will continue to have a robust intelligence effort, obviously not as strong as when you have people on the ground in Afghanistan, but nevertheless, very robust. And we will attack where we see people plotting against us. Attack
1: from afar, you mean like drones and or uh, bin Laden himself? That's
2: Or with special forces. I don't see the Biden doctrine as saying we will never go in anywhere to do anything that it might be necessary to protect ourselves.
1: Let me cycle back to the report for this last question. And we could talk about this for hours, but the report made a reference to defeating Terrorists. This is what we have to do. Was that a misstated or overstated goal? It does seem that radical jihadism, not to mention domestic terrorists, that's a whole nother subject, are just going to be an implacable feature of regular life going forward. And maybe in 2001, there was some sense we would see Dump them like a grape and completely take them off the face of the earth, but they're with us going forward, yes?
2: I think if you look at the list of people who were complicit in the attacks of 9-11, they have been one way or another eliminated. The funding for groups has been disrupted, And to be sure, there are pockets of terrorists that need to be addressed. I think that we will continue to do that. If you look at where there have been frightening terrorist events, they have been in more divisive societies. And that's why I mentioned what I did about the importance of our own inclusiveness and the importance of our embrace of our own diversity and the importance of the integration of the Muslim American community writ large into the larger U.S. community. You could interpret, Harry, defeat to mean you eliminate anyone who would wish the United States or its allies harm. I would not interpret it that way. But it is at a point where, at least right now, manageable. Is there an appetite to attack? an enemy. If we have another attack, like the attack on the coal, which happened in October of 2000, we sure as heck better do something about that and not leave something like that unanswered.
1: Just a quick follow-up. What does manageable mean? I tend to agree. I lived for a year in Israel where they think these things will happen sometimes. Let me put it to you directly. What Does manageable include a concrete risk of terrorist attack by, say, Foreign terrorists in the United States?
2: If you wanted to live in a perfectly safe society, you would not want to live there because it would have none of the rights, none of the openness, none of the ability to speak, none of the ability to travel, none of the privacy that we value. So, in our history, and you know this, we have had to balance security and our rights over and over again, starting with the creation of the Bill of Rights. And you give up something in the way of security when you want to make sure you have liberty. You could see it in Oklahoma City. You can see it in almost every one of the movements in our society. We have these pendulum swings. So when I say manage, I mean, try to get the balance Right. That's one of the things that one struggles with at our Department of Justice and in our national security community. Someone you and I worked with, who is a longtime prosecutor and fixture in the national security community, once said to me, my career comes down to two questions that people ask me. Why didn't you keep us safe? And you did what? (laughs) And that's what we have here. And that's what we have to manage. And that's what I mean by manage. So I just do want to add that
1: in the the sort of protean nature of these guys, there is a -a whack-a-mole aspect where it's true we're able to smother a certain group, but then other offshoots appear, like now ISIS-K in Afghanistan. That seems to me an abiding feature. So does a weird kind of competitiveness between them, like they are sworn enemies of one another, ISIS-K now and the Taliban. And there'll be that evolution within the terrorist world that I guess my former boss would say you just have to stay on top of. Let's move now to Texas and Washington. The headlines continued to be dominated this week by the battle over Texas's abortion statute, which combines patently unconstitutional restrictions with a bizarre and I'd say nasty enforcement scheme designed to keep the law from being challenged. So the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, said the the department was urgently exploring options promised a pushback, and delivered on Thursday with a suit against Texas saying the abortion statute violates federal law, which, of course, the Constitution makes supreme. So the department's papers struck me as pretty unusual and very bare bones. Rather than any cause of action, like 18 U.S.C. or 28 U.S.C., such and such, they just said, look, the U.S. has the authority and responsibility to ensure that Texas can't evade its obligations under the Constitution, and therefore, District Court, you need to enjoin it. What was your response to that very basic approach, and what do you sense its prospects are for at least freezing the operation of the law?
2: Having watched the Attorney General's press conference, it is clear that What he wants to do is elevate this debate out of the arcania of the screwy mechanism that was used here, this bounty mechanism to avoid actual challenge, to look at what is really going on here. And what he said was the way in which Texas has approached this has been an attempt to strip women seeking to have an abortion consistent with their rights under the case law and under the Constitution from any ability to challenge what Texas has done. That is inconsistent with how our system of rule of law works. And I think that's an important thing to state. I don't view it, Harry, as an absence of concreteness, but rather a return to first principles, which are critically important here. This is unconstitutional in that it strips women of a right they have, and it is inconsistent with rule of law in that it prohibits, prevents, frustrates the ability to bring this to our courts, which are and should be the arbiters here.
1: I couldn't agree more. They did find a way to get right at what the problem is. Sometimes the legal system Has these roundabout moves where, for instance, federal law, you have to plead something about interstate commerce. But we know that's not what really is going on, and that we know that's not really what's going on here. In fact, the Supreme Court said it. Chief Justice Roberts said it. This looks designed for, say, even craven purposes. You know, the notion that the state would be proud of a move that seems to me to be, you know, completely lacking in integrity and fidelity to the federal constitution of keeping it out of the hands of courts to review. Now, just add one more thing as a lawyer, which is doing it this way will mean a bit of a greater tussle in the district court. It might depend more on the district court's view of judicial Power, there's precedent for it, but it's kind of unusual. But at the end of the day, what can you say? There's jurisdiction. And if the department is right in its first principles, and they clearly are, it's a very straightforward proposition to just freeze the statute until you can have an authoritative determination of its lawfulness, which is, of course, the bigger problem here, looming down the tracks with the Supreme Court, in this case, and Mississippi.
2: I have a question for David. I was fascinated that there was a Wall Street Journal editorial that said this was the stupidest approach to abortion that it could think of. And of course, it is dangerous to the right, because you could imagine the same Cockamamie system being used to defeat gun rights or any other rights that the right holds dear, but what effect, if any, do you think that the view articulated by the Wall Street Journal has or might have on the current Supreme Court majority?
0: That's a very interesting question. I think you're right. This does open up a huge can of worms for everybody. This is how you can get around constitutional problems by just delegating enforcement of laws to this public. You're right. We, Massachusetts could pass a law saying you can sue coal plants. California could pass a law saying that you can sue gun dealers if their guns are used in a crime. And it, there's all kinds of ways this could be used against the right. And also, it just seems like it evades some pretty basic principles of how a law is supposed to work that give the Supreme Court their power. If we all pass these laws and the Supreme Court doesn't get to review them, the Supreme Court loses a huge chunk of its institutional power, which is to decide what you can and can't do. So I don't know how it will affect them. It certainly seems to preempt them if they were thinking of doing something big in the Mississippi case. Now Texas has sort of done it before them. And it maybe put them in a position of having to swab down Texas eventually, but give Mississippi what it wants. I find it hard to predict what this majority wants because I think a lot of them probably have seen when they go to bed at night, seen themselves striking down Roe versus Wade as the end point of their careers. So I don't know exactly how they're going to handle it. But this sort of backdoor approach it seems to me like an assault on something much bigger than just abortion in Texas.
2: It's quite unseemly. And what is particularly unseemly is allowing the statute to go into effect without further review.
1: Which they easily could have done, by the way. It's risable to say their hands were tied, as, as Alito did. And there will be egg on his face eventually. Because I do think in fairly short order, the statute will be enjoined. But then we come to the merits of the beast. (laughs) Let me follow up on Jamie's question. So the Wall Street Journal editorial kind of gives rise to the traditional divide in the Republican Party between the sort of business elite and the rank and file. I think there's a sense among many in the Republican Party that, uh uh-oh, this went too far, including this scheme. It's very unpopular in Texas. Employers are up and bothered because their female employees don't want to work there. Let me ask you, David, about the sort of political impact of Mississippi and Texas, whether the dynamic that we're seeing in certain governors are playing to the right when it comes to abortion is actually going to be bad for the Republican brand, as it were.
0: It's a very interesting question to me as a Texan. I grew up in Houston. Um, It's been interesting to watch the evolution of Greg Abbott there from kind of a Rick Perry, George Bush sort of middle of the road guy to now trying to outdo Ron DeSantis and own him to becoming sort of a troll in the way that DeSantis is. Somebody who does things, you know, judges his success by the rise he gets out of liberals. I think it's born of the fact that he doesn't really fear a challenger there. The Texas Democrats best hope was Beto O'Rourke, who then for some reason blew himself up to run for president for three weeks and doesn't seem to pose a threat to him. Beto changed Texas politics greatly in 2018. And, you know, My home county, Harris County, has a new chief executive, a county executive who got elected. Nobody thought she would because so many Houstonians were brought onto the polls by Beto. So I think there is a power base there for Democrats. But If they don't have a candidate, they can't take advantage of it. I think that's why Abbott is doing this. He really fears nothing more than a primary from Alan West or somebody to his right. He doesn't fear anybody on the Democratic side. The national question, I think for now it's hard to judge the national impact of this because I don't think a lot of people know this happened. Happened in such a weird, arcane way. The law is complicated. The Supreme Court, nobody's actually been punished under this law, but it's effectively stopped abortion. The lawsuit, as Jamie said, by the attorney general may raise that in public, public consciousness. But it's not the sort of national moment that repeal of Roe versus Wade would be, which maybe the Mississippi case will provide. So I think it's hard to say that Democrats think this is going to energize people because I'm not sure a lot of people outside Texas know that. It happened.
1: Fair enough. I mean, it has provided an opportunity, I think, in the, since just the Supreme Court's ruling there, the left has seen energize, raising money off it and the like. But it's interesting. So I'll go back again to the Vietnam War era, Roe v. Wade, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously said, I'm not sure Roe v. Wade was the right way to go. This judicial fiat that cut off debate that was sort of trending in a favorable direction. But it seems to me, I wonder your thoughts about this. I think it's a good closeout for this topic. If they do overrule, I think it's just not Justice Ginsburg's America anymore. It's a different one. And I think the prospects for some very extreme legislation in some states and then some basic liberty within the until viability in others remains. And I don't see the prospects for a kind of national movement toward an overall consensus. Do you guys have a
0: similar view? I feel like the Republicans have passed these laws, you know, so many states have these laws saying that if Rose repealed, you know, abortion is immediately illegal in their states. Eleven, right. Eleven states have a trigger law. That's right. It's been basically harmless for them politically because, you know, they can please their base and nobody else knows it happened. There's no impact. I don't think anybody really has thought about what America would look like if abortion truly was illegal in all those states. I think they have been very happy to take the enthusiasm of the anti-abortion movement and channel it into someday we're going to repeal Roe versus Wade and that they will be the dog that catches the car. I think that we haven't had a national debate, but I doubt that it is in the same place as the Texas legislature on this issue.
2: The polls show that the population as a whole is not where the Texas legislature was here. But Harry, I think you're right that if there is no Roe versus Wade, We will have a very wide range of state laws, and some of them may be quite draconian and, in essence, prohibiting abortion in any circumstance. And we could end up with a very strange-looking map with respect to women's health.
1: All right. We have a few minutes left. Another cheery subject, COVID. And I think there's exhaustion here, too, that and a sort of exhausted and fed up country, but has to gear up for another extended bout with safety measures and grim statistics. Nationwide, we've gone over the course of the summer from 25,000 new daily cases to over six times that many daily deaths are back up to 1,500. Biden had a very aggressive response lumping together executive rules and new federal rules Just to focus on him for a second, this struck me as part of the storyline of Biden as FDR, except with a razor-thin margin. So he basically cobbled together everything there was within the realm of the possible. It's an ambitious package.
2: My comment here is less about what the federal government is doing and more about where employers and places of work and places of entertainment will of necessity end up. If you can't come to work without being tested every five minutes, if you haven't had a vaccine, if you can't go into a bar or a restaurant, if you can't send your kids to school, those are going to be big incentives. A year ago, we were talking about behavioral nudges. Those are behavioral shoves. And I think we're going to end up with behavioral shoves because the vast majority of people want to be safe. They don't want to go to work with other people who are not uh, vaccinated. They don't want to go into a restaurant and have servers who aren't vaccinated. They don't want to send their kids to school if the teacher isn't vaccinated and so on. And I think eventually, and we're seeing this increasingly, employers and others are moving in that direction. If you look just for example, at the cruise industry. The cruise industry caters to a wide variety of people, many of whom don't want to be vaccinated. But the cruise industry knows it can't attract people to come on their ships unless they say they're safe. And so they've made it semi-miserable for someone who is not vaccinated to come on a cruise. And I think that reality is going to be the reality that we're seeing everywhere. And people I know who have heretofore refused to get a vaccine for idiotic reasons now, because they can't go to a bar, are going to get a vaccine. That's what it takes. I think this is going to be more about what the vast majority of people want in order to feel safe.
1: It certainly makes sense that it would be that. And I think, look, there have been the, among the holdouts, there have been idiotic reasons, I agree, or, or very strangely, but not well thought through ideological ones. Then people who, for whatever reason, haven't been able, but there's a provision in the plan to make employers give them time off, as you would to be in a jury, say. But I was struck, David, I wonder if you had a similar reaction. You know, Biden, who tries to be bipartisan outside of the fray, he was willing to push right on the seam of this cultural schism. Hey, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us. Now, in the overall context of some of the crazy culture wars, he was willing to step on the hornet's nest. And that struck me as a strong a sign as any of his
0: resolve. I was struck, too, by that, that he has resisted that sort of move so far. He's tried persuasion. He's tried public education. And I, I think you're right that the numbers are on his side. The majority of the public sees things this way. And the people that are on the other side, he's never going to get them anyway, to put it in sort of crass political terms. Those are never going to be Biden voters. And after all this time, you're you're holding out. The New York Times had a good story today about the reason this is holding back the economy is obviously the people who aren't getting vaccinated. So many of them are happy to go out to restaurants. I mean, they're acting like COVID has gone away. It's not them. Like that's not the problem with the economy is that people are unwilling to go eat at restaurants because a lot of unvaccinated people are. It's employees. People don't want to go to work. You can't hire a waiter. You can't hire a chef. You can't hire a maitre d'. You can't hire people to work in Home Depot because they don't want to go to a workplace where people weren't vaccinated. And that's what's holding back the economy is unfilled job openings where the person to fill that job exists but doesn't want to go to work and deal with the unvaccinated all day long. I think that's what's holding it back. There's a lot of economic sense behind that argument.
1: All right. Thank you very much, David and Jamie. We have the good fortune to hear from Representative Raja Krishnamurti, who, as you know, was called away on a scheduling emergency yesterday, but has graciously returned to talk to us on a Saturday, no less, and give us some of his thoughts on the topics that we've just finished discussing. I give you Representative Raja Krishnamurti. So we're very pleased to welcome now, a little late, Congressman Raja Krishnamurti, representing the 8th District of Illinois. The Congressman serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. He's also chair of the Oversight Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy, where he's led several investigations into the federal response to the pandemic. Congressman, welcome. I know that you had a last-minute emergency scheduling conflict yesterday, and it's really good of you to return over the weekend, no less, and give us the benefit of some of your thoughts on the topics we discussed. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Harry. All right. I'm going to ask you some questions that don't replicate what Jamie, David, and I talked about, so hopefully they will round out our discussion. But on the three topics we discussed, starting with the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I wanted to ask you, you were born abroad in India, though you moved here as an infant, but we spoke a lot on the website about whether the United States has missed opportunities to combat terrorism by essentially keeping steadfast to its role of moral leadership in the world. Do you have any sense of that? Have we fallen short in the world's eyes? Unfortunately,
4: yes. I mean, I think that one of the reasons I think people maybe disagree with the premise that we've actually been steadfast in keeping to our role as moral leaders. You know, I think, first of all, I want to say that none of our troops or servicemen and women deserve blame for being sent on their different missions and performing their missions. I think that the blame lays at the feet of leadership. You know, we had a mandate to go after Al-Qaeda after 9-11, but we did not have a mandate to remain and try to build a nation in Afghanistan for 20 years after that. We didn't have a mandate to then engage in a war of choice based on false pretenses in Iraq. And these types of conflicts, which, you know, basically led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, really soured many people in the world in terms of our presence in that region and our standing as leaders, not to mention the way we conducted it in terms of using torture on some occasions. and also, you know, setting up a vast surveillance state, which in the process also involves surveilling Americans here at home. I'm on the intelligence committee, so I work a lot with the intelligence community on a lot of these issues. And I think now we're going to have to course
1: correct as we go forward. Yeah. We talked about a steady erosion in public support and a general glum set of commentaries. Sounds to me, Congressman, as if you think the big misstep was actually 2002, 2003, somewhere in that range. Is that fair?
4: Yes. If you look at the 2001 authorization of the use of military force that Congress authorized, it was a 60 word provision which I think at the time lawmakers had envisioned was mainly going to apply to Al-Qaeda and those who had perpetrated the attacks of 9-11. Now, since that time, those 60 words have been used in all kinds of ways for 20 years to basically, in some ways, enlarge the presidency, use military force where I think Congress never consented to it. And uh, to the extent that Congress is an embodiment of of the American people, the American people never consented to it either.
1: Yeah. So it's a really interesting point and beyond our discussion today. But I'll just add that there are analysts out there who would also say that Congress kind of acquiesced here for its own political reasons and wanted to serve up that open-ended kind of authorization to use military force to, you know, and and we're content many members to maybe let the president do as she or he would. All right. Thank you. So essentially looked back today at 9-11 and in the present at COVID and, but then a little in the future in Texas. And I did want to just ask your thoughts about the Texas abortion statute and what it's portending for the coming months. I wanted to ask you as a lawyer what you thought about Texas's strategy of outsourcing enforcement to private parties, any private parties, as best we can tell, anywhere in the world. Will the courts, even for now setting aside the draconian abortion restrictions, will the courts permit that sort of Enforcement strategy to operate? And if so, what dangers do you think that might portend?
4: I don't think the courts will. I mean, I think that the DOJ's lawsuit kind of set out in part why that's the case. And as you know, these private actors who are acting under the color of state law will be, you know, essentially trying to deny people constitutional rights. And that includes people who might even be cared for by the federal government in Texas. And I think that DOJ is going to be able to, I think, successfully argue that regardless of who is enforcing, whether it's private parties or the Texas government, that any infringement upon their activities, their operations, their federal programs, and of course, federal constitutional rights would be unconstitutional and the president under the take care clause, the clause that enables him to, or her to take care, to effectuate the laws of the United States um, has the right to enforce them too. But I want to just point out that, you know, in doing what they did, the Texas state legislature, I think is creating dangerous precedent because you could easily see a situation where if for some reason courts, actually upheld this type of enforcement scheme, I could easily see other states decide that, you know what, we're going to create bounty hunter systems to essentially nullify the constitutional rights that we don't like that others have. So for instance, you could see people being empowered as bounty hunters to try to undo the second amendment rights of people. You could see in some states, maybe some blue states, bounty hunters being established to go after religious or parochial schools that don't necessarily practice the way that they believe. So this is a very dangerous and slippery slope. I think the courts aren't going to permit it, but we will soon find out.
1: My best guess as well, for both legal and political reasons, this will be an experiment that thinks like a lead balloon, but it's not just ill-suited, but perverse. And there are really good reasons you don't want private people who can get who are doing it for among other reasons for money to be the people enforcing federal law. Finally, I uh, ask you for a quick word on a topic that I think has been I probably your sharpest focus in the last several months, which is COVID, we talked a fair bit about its kind of exhausting resurgence, or at least partial resurgence. But you've been in particular, Congressman, a leader in pushing for a global vaccination program. They sent a recent letter to leadership requesting that it be included funding for it and reconciliation. What's your thinking? Why do you see this as the key and as to date incomplete? aspect of the battle against COVID?
4: Well, I started this push back in the late April, early May timeframe when the Delta variant first originated in India, my birth country, and ended up taking the lives of three of my extended family. And I saw very quickly that, you know, this variant, as well as others, are harming so many people and Not only is it the right thing to do to help people who are suffering, but it's the smart thing to do because quickly those variants will make their way over here and eventually defeat our vaccines. And so we've seen how the Delta variant made its way to America and is wreaking havoc in some parts of the country. I introduced this legislation called NOVID. It's a play on words, no more COVID. And the idea is to essentially... Set up a program to help vaccinate 60% of the population of the world's 92 poorest countries. And just to give you a sense of why this is needed, you know, in this country, more than 50% of the population is fully vaccinated. In Africa, a continent of 1.2 billion people, only 3% of the continent has received perhaps their first jab. And so that's why it's so crucial that we go down this path because we have two choices, Harry. Either we can end this pandemic or we can muddle through. And not setting up a program where we help to lead the way, just like we did with PEPFAR in Africa with HIV AIDS, by the way. But this time we should do the same with COVID and the rest of the world. We have a chance to do this right and we can end the pandemic at the same time.
1: Congressman, thanks very much for your time. Hope to see you again soon on Talking Feds. Thank you so much. All right, we are out of time for today. Thank you very much to David, Jamie, and Congressman Krishnamurti. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. You can check us out on the web. TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can now, in recent weeks, follow us also on Instagram and Facebook. Finally, you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last couple of days, we've published discussions about the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial and our periodic discussion with Bianca Brooks about what's on the minds of millennials and Gen Xers. So you can go to Patreon, see what's there, and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Nals and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert and Kalena Tano. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.